five ways you are fighting your femininity, why the Israelites were traumatized by hearing the Ten Commandments from God himself, and what are my thoughts on purity culture. All this and more on today's episode of the Classically Abbey Podcast. Hello, Classic Crew, and welcome to today's episode of the Classically Abbey Podcast. We have a lot to talk about today, and I'm very excited to get into it. Uh, If you are new here, make sure to subscribe to my channel, as well as to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really just about anywhere. So if you are interested in subscribing, make sure to do so. And I would love if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me out. Uh, We are going to be doing a main topic today that's really interesting. We are talking about five ways that we are fighting our femininity. I think that we are living in a in a time where we are constantly being taught to push away those things that really do make us womanly and more feminine. And I want to talk about how we can stop fighting those things. We're also we'll also be doing our weekly catch up, our faith talk And stay tuned till the end where I'll be answering my premium subscriber questions. If you'd like to become a premium subscriber and submit questions for future podcast episodes, make sure to head over to classicallyabby.substack.com where you'll get access to a ton of exclusive content, including my book club, as well as weekly exclusive articles and an amazing community of women. And it's only $7 a month. So now that I've said all of the things... Uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing a lot about what we're what what I've been thinking about lately. And I just want to mention if my voice sounds a little bit odd, uh, my son had hand, foot and mouth, as I mentioned in a previous episode, and then he caught a cold and like two days later, legitimately two days later, and I've been kind of fighting off that same cold. So I don't have the worst full blown version of it, but it's kind of like, in my sinuses, a little bit in my nose, a little bit in my ears, a little bit of a sore throat, just like a little bit of everything. And so I'm uh, I'm just kind of in a fog as far as just muddling my way through it. But uh, my voice might sound a little off. That is why. So let's just get into our weekly catch up. So let's start with this. I actually wrote an article about it for my Substack. And I'm just going to briefly touch on it here a little bit less than I did in the in the article, but we are reading the book, The Happiness Hypothesis for Book Club. Actually, we just finished it. We did our book club meeting last night and it, it really got me to thinking and I really enjoyed it a lot. I really recommend it. If you want to check it out, uh, you know, it's available anywhere. I listened to it on Audible. Um, it's by Jonathan Haidt. And funnily enough, one of the things that actually got me to thinking was something that he he wasn't a proponent of, but he was kind of explaining his train of thought. And when he was in high school, at the end of high school, he sort of had an existential crisis when he realized that he was an atheist and he, he was nihilistic. And he was kind of like, okay, well, how do I make life meaningful to me? And for him, it was, well, I have to live life to the fullest because there's nothing after this. Now, he Jonathan Haidt is an atheist, but... Um, he does kind of shift that perspective in the book, the perspective of, you know, living life to the fullest in a a negative way. But it did get me to thinking, you know, my life in many ways is more mundane 
because I am, you know, a stay-at-home mom. I'm a homemaker and I'm doing a lot of the same things, a lot of the same chores day in and day out. I wash my son's high chair 50 times a day. (laughs) I am sweeping the floor. I am cooking dinner. I am washing dishes. And I kind of asked myself, okay, well, is this what living life to the fullest looks like? Or is it those women who say, you know, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to have a family and can jet set anywhere they want, can have brunch on their own schedule, can kind of live life more for themselves, uh, which looks very glamorous. You know, it looks very appealing from the outside. And after sitting with that for a while, I kind of, I kind of realized something. And I think maybe this is a useful realization on a number of topics that you could kind of use whenever you're starting to question whether you'd be happier doing something else or whether the grass is greener. And that is my general level of happiness and contentment is very, very high. I have a fundamental happiness built into my day-to-day because of all of the things that I have. So because I'm married, because I have a son, because I get to be with him every day and I get to see him grow, my actual like base level of happiness and contentment is up here. And so I was sort of superimposing my current level of happiness on the activities of the life that these women are living where they're jet setting and traveling and doing all these fun things. And I say this because I did that (laughs) before I got married Uh, Before I met my husband, I was traveling a lot because I was an opera singer. I was doing things on my own schedule. I was dating for fun. I was dressing immodestly. And at the end of the day, I was really not very happy. Like my day-to-day was theoretically a little more exciting. But at the end of every day, I came home and I felt empty because I didn't have someone waiting for me at home. I didn't have my little baby to play with and to hug and to hold. And it looks like very a very fun thing to see these women doing these crazy things. I mean, on social media, it looks really nice that they're getting to do these amazing trips and, you know, they're always have like a glass of wine in their hand or something like that. But at the same time, when I actually lived that, it wasn't as glamorous as it looks. But because of where I'm at now, I can kind of look at those activities and think, oh, that would be fun. Maybe that's what a life of fun looks like. Because my base level is so good, because my base level of contentment is so high. So the lesson here is not that I should be giving up everything I have, God forbid, and running off to do these crazy things. It's that my you have to remember where you're, where the actual contentment is. And then you can sprinkle in those fun activities instead of making them your whole life. So instead of saying, okay, I need to throw out the life I'm living and go do this living life to the fullest like lifestyle, instead of doing that, you can think, okay, I want to live my mundane life because that mundane life actually is what brings me contentment, but sometimes it can get a little monotonous. And so I should sprinkle in those fun-filled activities from, from this picture that I'm seeing. So I can take a vacation once or twice a year. I should do date night once a week. I should go see a movie. I can go do brunch with my friends and sprinkle in those fun-filled activities while maintaining the joy that your mundane life brings you. 
So I don't know if that made sense, but I would love if you would leave a comment. Uh, you can leave a comment on YouTube if you're watching this, or you can leave a comment on my Substack where you will get access to the comment section. So I thought that was kind of an interesting realization, and it was very helpful for me to remember kind of what that mundane, I want to say mundanity, it's not a word, mundaneness, sure, that mundane, where that mundaneness uh, really provides for me and brings me joy, and that it is something that is the root of all of my that's where I wanted to start. But next up, I want to briefly talk about the Satanistic performance at the Grammys. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched it. It kind of went viral, uh, mostly in the conservative movement, I would say, on the conservative, or rather in the conservative commentators uh, space. We were all kind of shocked and horrified, although that's what the left really wants us to be, is they're doing this to poke us and to goad us into com- into talking about it. Um, but at the Grammy Awards, if you didn't see, there was a Satanistic performance by Sam Smith and Kim Petras. It was uh, really kind of gross and shocking and, I mean, meant to make us look at them and say this is a ritual to Satan. So I wanted to mention why the left worships at Satan's altar rather than God's. Because I think that there's... An important point to be said on this. If God, you know, God is benevolent. He is good and kind and loving and he takes care of us. But God is also judgmental in some ways. And he has standards that we should uphold, right? In order for societies and civilizations to thrive, we need certain standards. We need to be clear about what is good and what is bad, what is moral, what is right. But if God is judgmental and has standards, to the left, that must mean that God is bad. Because Satan doesn't care what people do. Satan is non-judgmental because he accepts anyone for doing anything wrong, anything bad, anything evil. But that must mean that he's good. Because he's not judgmental. When the height of morality is not being judgmental, then you get a, a worship of Satan. Satan encourages people to act in their own self-interest at the cost of others. And that's the interesting thing about that is that the left sees self, right? Self-interest. They see self as the most important and most virtuous thing. To thine own self be true is their highest virtue, even if that comes at the cost of other people. So Satan, who is telling people to go after whatever they, or rather makes people think that they should go after whatever they want, right? Like that that's the most important thing is do you. You do you is the Satan catchphrase. <laughs> Whereas God is, you know, don't do unto others as you would not done unto yourself. That judgmental, in a good way, thing that God, you know, has created the world with and and runs the world with and keeps civilization strong and society strong, the left can't accept it. 
because judgment is the highest is the highest form of evil. It's an interesting thing to keep in mind. So on a totally other note, right? We just kind of went through the zeitgeist a little bit. Uh, I wanted to just chat a little about why I love putting on makeup. <laughs> I've been thinking about putting on makeup a little bit lately just because it's something that really brings me so much joy. And I know that for some people, makeup is a waste of time. It bores them. But I just love putting on makeup. And the reason is, there's a few reasons. One is, for me, that is my time. That is my time to do something for me. And it really isn't for anyone else. I just love doing my makeup. It like makes me happy to have some time that I just say, okay, this is my time and I don't have to worry about anybody else. But on top of it, I find makeup really creative and fun and transformative. And I like, it's like flexing my my creative muscle every morning because I can do something different every single day. I can do a different kind of bronzer. I can do a different kind of highlight. I can do a different kind of eyeshadow and just mixing and matching colors and doing things that are very cool to see the change in real time. And then it washes off at the end of the day. So if I really didn't like it, no worries. I think that if people viewed, if women who are really, they view makeup as a chore, if they viewed makeup more as something fun and creative, then they could enjoy the process more. And that's not to say that if you're somebody who doesn't enjoy the wearing makeup at all, that you need to do it. But if you're somebody who kind of feels like they should wear makeup or is in a situation where you're going to work and it's more professional to wear makeup, then finding the joy in it I think is really nice. And so I'm a big fan. So next up, I think it's important to talk about putting your house to bed because recently I've been taking the time, putting in the effort to clean my house at the end of every day. I used to kind of let it build up, maybe do like a once a clean or twice or once a week or twice a week cleanup uh, or I'd leave dishes till the morning. But recently I've been really doing the thing that I've been told to do many times which is to clean the house before you go to sleep so you wake up to a clean house. It really does make a difference, especially if you work from home, knowing that you aren't going to have to do chores first thing in the morning and being able to get your day started right from the beginning. It is so helpful. And so I've been you know, trying to keep up with cleanliness throughout the day so it doesn't all build up at night. So for example, when my son makes a mess on the floor, Instead of leaving that till the end of the day, I will sweep up a number of times because he makes a number of messes throughout the day uh, to keep the floor clean. And by the end of the day, when we get there, it's like by, by the evening, I don't have to worry about the floor being a total mess. Or I try to do one load of laundry a day. Or I try to wash the dishes as I go or put them in the dishwasher instead of in the sink. That really does make a big difference. And I think it can just remove a little bit of stress that we all have when we wake up in the morning. I mean, you wake up to a clean house and you feel like you can take on the day for sure. Last but not least, uh, let's talk a little bit about a movie I rewatched with my parents and my husband the other night, How to Train Your Dragon. Have you guys seen that? It's been a while since I watched it, but I used to love that movie and the score is absolutely outrageously good. But that movie is so fun and I really, really enjoyed it. And I know that there's a second one and a third one, which I've never seen and I really want to watch. So 
Let me know if you have seen those, if you've seen How to Train Your Dragon 2 and How to Train Your Dragon 3. I'd love to hear because I've heard good things and I want to watch them because I'm re-watching the first one. I really enjoyed it. Toothless is super cute. Hiccup is a little bit annoying, but uh, I can enjoy his character. <laughs> and just the whole concept is fun. Although I do have one question. So uh, hear me out. All of the... All of the dragons in the movie are innocent, but they're responding to the giant, like, overlord dragon, which is calling them to steal animals or whatever from the people that Hiccup is from. Uh, So my question is, they then go to attack the ginormous, the ginormous dragon. I keep wanting to call it a dinosaur because it looks like a dinosaur, but it's a dragon. And they just destroy it. But how do we know what the giant dragon's motivation is? I mean, question left unanswered. (laughs) I don't know if that's a, if that's a fair question, but I don't know. It seems, it seems funny that we can give all of the other dragons a pass and not the giant one because we learn the motivation of the smaller dragons, but we never, we never learn the motivation of the giant dragon that's controlling them. We just, they just take it out. So Interesting thought, right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. So now let's get into the main portion of today's episode, which is five ways you are fighting your femininity. We live in a world where being feminine is relegated to silly outward appearance things, but also more than that, it it's just not valued in the same way. And I think that there's a lot of things we can do to embrace our femininity, right? But not just embrace it, stop fighting it. So I'm excited to share these five things with you. Let's just get started. So number one is not accepting your changing body. I say this as a postpartum mom. Uh, I'm 10 months postpartum and my body looks entirely different than it did before I had a baby. And I don't know that it will ever look the same. And I'm not just talking about weight gain, weight loss, whatever it is. I'm talking about structurally, my body is different. My hips are wider. My waist is a little thicker. My stomach has stretch marks on it. Uh, I have loose skin from carrying a baby. And it's an interesting thing because we live in a day where we're constantly fighting for what we used to look like. Right. We're always like looking back to, okay, I want to look the same as I did when I was 16. I want to look the same as I did before I had a baby. I want to look the same as I did before I had my second baby. And the truth is that women, the feminine figure was meant to shift and change. Even before, you know, having children throughout the month, your body changes throughout the month around your period. Your body will change because of hormonal shifts, right? Men's bodies don't change. Men's bodies stick one way their whole lives. If men choose to, you know, not take care of themselves, then, you know, they'll gain weight or whatever else it is. But men's bodies do not react hormonally the same way that women's do. Women's bodies are not supposed to stay the same. We are not supposed to look exactly the way we did before we had children, after we have children. We are going to lose weight. We are going to gain weight. We are going to have looser skin. We're going to have stretch marks. We're going to have, 
you know, our, our, our bodies, our, our, our structure, our skeletal structure is going to change after we birth children. Fighting femininity, fighting your body is telling yourself that you need to look exactly the same as you did all your whole life. And it's just not realistic. Your body is going to change and it should change. That is part of being a woman. The fact that our bodies can change to host a human being is incredible. We, we love on our bodies so much. I think most women do, not every woman, but most women do. We love on our bodies so much for the fact that we can get pregnant and grow a human and our bodies can house a little baby and our stomachs stretch We love that our bodies are flexible enough to do that, but then we're like, bounce back, bounce back, bounce back. I think it's important to exercise, to stay healthy, to eat well. I think that's all really important because taking care of yourself is important. And there is a certain level of when you take care of yourself, then your body responds in kind, aka it looks better when you take care of yourself. But is it going to look the same? No. And I think that expectation that our bodies should remain the same throughout our entire lives means you're fighting your femininity. So that's number one. Number two is fighting your nurturing nature. When we are told to have sex with no strings attached, to sleep around and not get catch feelings, things like that, and and there's other examples I'm going to share here, but things like that, are fighting our nurturing nature. One of the most beautiful parts of being feminine is that we are so nurturing, that we want to take care of people, that we want to give them a a warm and loving home. And fighting that by trying to say, I'm not going to give of of myself to someone else, right? Let's say in a sexual relationship, in, in a physical relationship, is so wrong. There's a reason that saving sex until marriage is so beautiful because that nurturing nature where you want to take care of the person that you are sharing that intimacy with is a perfect place to do it. You're supposed to do that. That nurturing nature can come out and should come out. And in kind, your husband wants to take care of you. It's so important for us to hold that nurturing nature close because otherwise we let it go. And a woman who doesn't nurture starts to lose a little bit of herself. Now, another version of this is when we become harsh disciplinarians or harsh um, spreader of truths. Now, to be clear, I think that there are times that it is a lot of fun to be a little bit more strident, a little bit more brash in the way that we Uh, talk about ideas. Uh, If you follow me on Instagram, if you watch my reels, you will know that I do that with, with that content. I think that it's funny. But the truth is when I'm really trying to change people's minds, when I'm really trying to give some guidance, it has to be gentle. It has to be nurturing. It's so easy to kind of want to cross over into that, like, here's what it is. And I'm telling you what to do. And I'm going to be harsh and I'm going to be a disciplinarian and I'm going to be bossy or whatever else it is, but it is much more effective when we lean into that nurturing nature and we use our gentle guidance to help impart wisdom, impart ideas, 
impart help. I, I know that even in, as a mother, it is unnatural for me to really discipline harshly my son. When I come to him in a loving, kind, nurturing way, first of all, he responds better. But second of all, I can feel that I feel pride in my mothering in those moments. So don't fight that nurturing nature. Embrace it because that is a huge part of your femininity. Number three is embracing hustle culture rather than slow living. Guys, I am, I am over hustle culture. I am over it. I don't like it. It's not my thing. Uh, I am much more for slow living. Now, I know that slow living can make a lot of people like pause and not really understand and think that you're saying they have to quit their jobs and stay at home all the time and never do anything that's really like stressful. That's not what I mean. I just mean being intentional, enjoying your everyday, taking time in those pockets that you have it to not be stressed and not searching out stress in the moments you don't have to. AKA, I have had many moments where I have a few minutes just to spare. And instead of taking advantage of them in a positive, gentle way and thinking, oh, you know, I have a couple minutes, maybe I'll read or maybe I'll play with my son. I'll be like, what else do I have to do? I need to find something to do. I I get really urgent about it. That to me is more of a hustle culture perspective of I need to constantly be busy. I need to constantly be producing. I need to constantly be doing something very hectic. It's much more feminine to embrace slow living, to cook something, take an extra 20 minutes and cook something tastier rather than faster, to sit with your baby and play for 15 minutes, just directed attention rather than giving him two minutes and then running around to clean your house. It's so important to lean into this life that we have and rushing constantly feeling rushed. Life is short, but it's also long. And it's important to us, for us, to take advantage of each and every moment and enjoy it. And when you're rushing to get things done all the time and you like need to be busy, you're also rushing time. Like you will get to the end of the day and feel like that that your day was just like hectic and it just passed you by and you were running around as opposed to maybe half of your day is like that. And the other half of your day, you get to the end, you're like, wow, that was really a nice, luxurious day. I wish for all of us that our time feels luxurious. And that doesn't mean 100% of the time. But even those small pockets of time that you really allow yourself to just take things easy or to invest in a project that's that's fun and and immersive it's it's so feminine it's so important i think start with cooking that's an easy place to start cooking doesn't always have to be two steps one and done like it can be a thing that you follow the recipe and enjoy like choose something that's just a little bit more complicated a little bit it doesn't have to be a full day project 
but maybe something that you've never done before. The other night I made a um, spaghetti squash and I'd never made spaghetti squash before. And I made a bolognese sauce that from scratch, like I didn't just pour marinara sauce from a, from a bottle into the pan. I made one from scratch. And just those two things added maybe 15 minutes to the whole process, but it made it feel so much more luxurious to me. And I I really enjoyed the process. So embrace slow living and reject hustle culture. Number four, the fourth way you are fighting your femininity is wearing only loungewear. (laughs) I know that sounds funny, but we are in the era of athleisure. That is the fashion of today. Most people wear leggings and a sweatshirt every single day. And wearing pretty clothing that makes you feel good is feminine. Wearing pretty clothing that accentuates your figure in a modest way, that's so feminine. Constantly covering yourself in what's comfortable or what's easy or things that really disguise your figure, disguise your body, it just, it takes away one of the the really beautiful elements of womanhood. And that's not to say that you have to dress fancy or that you have to like really think hard every day about your outfit. But it means taking a moment, picking something from your closet that really speaks to you, that you really love, that expresses your personality and that makes you feel good in your body. And that looks different for everybody. I had Sarah Therese on on my podcast a couple episodes ago and she dresses not totally different from me because both of us actually, there are some overlap, but she dresses in a way that is not typically feminine, but makes her feel like a woman, right? Like she feels really good in her figure. She feels really good in her body. I'm not speaking for her, but I think that that's true. I think she's kind of given that across on her Instagram. And wearing just the same pair of baggy pants and the same baggy sweatshirt and whatever, every single day, it just takes away from the beauty of our figures, the beauty of the bodies God gave us and the beauty of expressing ourselves through our clothing. Style is a really fun way to express your personality. And I always say it skips the first step of trying to show someone who you are when they can kind of tell who you are through your clothes. So number four is Wearing only loungewear fights your femininity, so stop doing that. (laughs) Start wearing beautiful clothing and clothing that makes you feel good. Number five is sinking into social media. That's one of the ways you're fighting your femininity. Femininity calls for socialization and being an active member of your community. Social media makes you feel like you're doing that, but really you're sequestering yourself behind a screen. The most dangerous things in life are the things that make you think you're doing something positive, so you invest your time and energy into it, but really are a waste of your time. Another example, often for men, is video games. Now, I'm not like anti-all video games. I think there are certain scenarios when you're playing with your friends, when it is a social activity, that can be fine. But a lot of video gaming is about pursuit of a goal, And so you'll play until you get that goal, but really there's no goal to be had in in beating a video game, right? It's not really useful. The same as social media. Social media feels like you're socializing. It's called social media. Oh, I'm talking to my friends. 
I'm keeping in touch with people. I'm following along with their lives. The truth is that the advent of social media has actually ruined a lot of relationships. It keeps you kind of in touch on the very fringes of your mind at all times, but you're not actually in touch. Like when is the last time you spoke to the people that you follow on social media, actually called them on the phone or saw them in person and got coffee? Not very often. It's probably pretty rare. So social media takes away that impetus of us for as women to be really active community members and active parts of our social groups. There's something wonderful about having a book club in person or on my uh, Substack, for example, or being a, a part of your synagogue's community or your church's community. It's so important. And it it makes you, one of the things I always say is important about femininity is being strong enough that people can depend on you. And that is one of the most core things about being a good community member. So if you are not available for that because you're too active on social media, and I say this to myself as much as anyone else, you are fighting your femininity and it's not worth it. It's so much better to be uh, part of your PTA or to be somebody who is helping your community grow and be better. With your involvement as a woman, it really makes a difference. So those are my five ways you are fighting your femininity. Let me know what you guys think. I always love to hear your thoughts. So now let's get into today's faith talk. So today's Parsha is Yitro. Today's Torah portion is Yitro, which is Hebrew for Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And here is the summary of this Parsha from Chabad's website. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, hears the great miracles which God performed for the people of Israel and comes from Midian to the Israelite camp, bringing with him Moses' wife and his two sons. Jethro advises Moses to appoint a hierarchy of magistrates and judges to assist him in the task of governing and administering justice to the people. Honestly, I could do a whole talk just about that, about how important it is to delegate and not try and take on all of the responsibilities because when we do, we end up doing everything a little bit worse as opposed to taking on the things that we can actually handle and doing them well. But uh, that's not the main focus. But I think that that's just interesting. It's an important point for us to remember. The children of Israel camp opposite Mount Sinai, where they are told that God has chosen them to be his kingdom of priests and holy nation. The people respond by proclaiming, all that God has spoken, we shall do. On the sixth day of the third month, seven weeks after the Exodus, the entire nation of Israel assembles at the foot of Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah. God descends on the mountain amidst thunder, lightning, billows of smoke, and the blast of the shofar, and summons Moses to to ascend. Now, I just want to put in here that I feel like it's interesting. Doesn't it sound like Mount Sinai is just a volcano from that description? I don't think it is. I mean, at least from what we know about Mount Sinai now, it's not, but uh, it's, it just seems like a volcano. (laughs) It's sort of funny. God proclaims the 10 commandments, commanding the people of Israel to believe in God, not to worship idols or take God's name in vain, to keep the Sabbath, honor their parents, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, and not to bear false witness or covet another's property. The people cry out to Moses that the revelation is too intense for them to bear, begging him to receive the Torah from God and convey it to them. I think this is such an interesting Torah portion because, I mean, so important, right? We're getting the Ten Commandments. Everything that 
this is all based on everything we believe in. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's just so interesting to go back to these like big turning points in faith, in our faith. You know, some Parshas, some Torah portions are more focused on a specific story, but things like this, this is the moment where the Israelites became the Jews, where the Israelites received the Torah. And that's just amazing. But what I want to focus on today is the fact that the Israelites were traumatized, essentially, when they heard God speaking directly to them. The question is why? I think so many of us wish we could just talk to God, like, and have him respond, right? Like talk to God face to face in a sense, so that we could get an understanding of what this is all about. Why do bad things happen? Why is this happening, not this thing? Like, why is the world the way that it is? We want to understand the world and talking to God, speaking to God, being there with God seems like an amazing opportunity. Why would they be traumatized by it? I understand the idea that it could be just scary, but there's something, in, I think it has to just be more than it was just you know, God's voice was a loudspeaker and there were fireworks, you know? It's not just the surround sound experience. I think there's more to it than that. My idea of God and of being in the presence of God is that it's an immersive experience. God isn't just a thing. He's not just a person. He's not just a creature. He's not just a loud, booming voice. God is everything. That means he is past, present, and future. All at once happening in front of you. He is truth in all of its glory. When you are in God's presence, when God was giving the Torah to the Jewish people, he wasn't just loud. It wasn't just a voice they were hearing. It was being in the presence of everything all at once. That's too overwhelming. It's too overwhelming to see and know everything that God knows. We think that if we understood everything from beginning to end, we'd be able to navigate the world in a more positive and effective way. But the truth is, if we knew everything that was going to happen and everything that did happen, it would be too much to comprehend. And we probably still couldn't accept it. We are not able to see what true good looks like in the sense that we don't know why everything has to happen the way that it does. God does. God understands. God understands and weighs things accordingly. We can't see things outside of our own worldview. So even seeing through God's eyes or seeing everything that God knows, we couldn't comprehend how everything needs to fit in and slot in with each other. So we might see something that looks like a complete and utter tragedy or a complete and utter triumph. And while God can see that as all part of a whole, we can only see it at its, at our level. We can only see how it affects the certain things we understand even within the context of everything in the world, it's still too big, too much for us to take in. We have to trust in God's plan because even if we could see it, we couldn't understand it. 
So I think that that's what we can learn. We can't really truly know God, even though we want to, even though we want to be able to to connect with God and in the sense of understanding everything he does. We, we just can't. We simply cannot. The, the human mind can't, cannot accept all of the different layers and levels that God is and knows and takes care of. The truth is, in order to be human, in order to live in the world that God created for us, we cannot know everything that God has planned. So at the end of the day, we have to trust in God and believe in God and deepen our relationship with God in order to find beauty and meaning in life. And that means not necessarily understanding how everything is going to turn out, but knowing that God does and that we are not God. There's a reason that we are not God, that we are just people that God put on earth to be a part of him, right? We each have a little bit of God inside of us, our souls, but we are not ultimately God. And that is okay. It's hard, but it's also okay. So we have to accept where where, where we're at, who we are and where we're at, and trust that God can provide for us and knows more than we do. So that is my faith talk for today. Let's go ahead and get into my premium subscriber questions. Okay, so the first question I am pulling from our discussion thread on Substack. We have community discussion threads every week. And the question is, how did you manage being heavier after pregnancy and buying clothes you knew you wouldn't want long term? That sort of relates back to the main portion of today's episode that women's bodies are ever changing. But I think this is such a funny question because I've been thinking about this. Because I want to declutter my closet, but at the same time, I have so many different stages of my body that I will be going through in the next five to 10 years, right? Because I will be getting pregnant again with God's help. I will be having a postpartum period. I will hopefully be breastfeeding again. I will then be, you know, not breastfeeding and I'll just be kind of back to my pre-pregnancy weight, hopefully or at least some version of that, and I will be not breastfeeding, and then I'll be pregnant again. So it's a cycle. So I have to keep all of my clothes for all of those different times in my future. I have to keep the clothes for maternity. I have to keep the clothes for breastfeeding. I have to keep the clothes for, you know, one or two sizes bigger than I am for that postpartum period. So I think the answer to your question is, if you are planning on getting pregnant again after the current pregnancy that you're in and you could invest in a a couple of pieces and I don't mean invest in like a really nice amount of money but you can get some pieces uh, or rather a really nice amount a really nice piece of clothing (laughs) what I mean is is a piece of clothing that isn't stretchy you can spend money on a pair of pants that's a size or two bigger than you normally are because you will wear it again after your next pregnancy that's what I did. I have a few pieces that like a pair of jeans or, or a couple of pair of jeans that I can wear post pregnancies because I plan on being pregnant multiple times. Um, but if that isn't the case for you, I think finding some clothing and even if it is the case for you, it's just useful to have some clothing that's stretchy, 
I have a lot of clothes that I got for my postpartum period that were just a little more forgiving and could go from, you know, my 15 pounds overweight that I was after having a baby to five pounds overweight or closer to my pre-pregnancy size. So choosing clothing that is just either a little bit boxier or a little bit stretchier will be a little more forgiving on your body and can still be worn through many of the stages that your body's going to go through pre, uh, post-pregnancy and during pregnancy. So that's my, that's my, my suggestion, my advice. What movies or shows are you and your husband watching lately? So my husband and I just finished watching the newest season of Fauda. We loved the first three seasons. We weren't the biggest fan of the last season, to be honest, but we loved that show. We love the characters. It's in Hebrew. It's an Israeli show. And we really like the way it's produced. We really like the stories. It's all about parallels, which is really interesting. So I do recommend the first three seasons. I don't know what's coming after this season. So maybe there's like something that can redeem it. But I didn't love this current season. Um, but I, I do love Israeli television because we also watched another Israeli show called When Heroes Fly. And I really enjoyed it. I did feel like they didn't stick the landing. Like the last episode wasn't great. It was a limited series. But I did enjoy it up until the ending. We also, we are doing a rewatch of Community. We don't watch it every night or anything like that. But it's like if we're doing chores and we need to clean up the house at the end of the night, we'll like throw on Community on the TV. And it just makes us laugh. So that's one of our favorite shows to just kind of have on in the background. And we recently watched the movie The Pale Blue Eye with Christian Bale. Uh, and it's an interesting movie goes in. I mean, it's, it's gruesome. So keep that in mind, but, uh, it's, it's a detective story in some ways. It's more like an old fashioned detective story. Like it's, I can imagine this was made in the 1930s or 1940s, but it's just shot more slickly because it's current. And I like Christian Bale's acting a lot. The other character who plays, um, Poe, Edgar Allan Poe is the guy who played Dudley from Harry Potter. So that's funny. And it's, I, I think I would recommend it, but it is dark and it's not totally what you expect. So yeah, interesting film. Definitely interesting. The next question is, I'm struggling with my dating life right now. I'm in college and I have a few guy friends who I think are cute keep waiting for the guys I like to approach me, but it's just not happening. Should I be doing something differently? Any suggestions? So yes, I I do have some suggestions, but also what I'll say is dating is hard. And I went through this exact thing when I was dating. There were all of these guys that I was interested in and I felt like they would never reciprocate. And I was like, what is this? What is wrong with me that I can't get the guys that I like to be interested in me? It was so frustrating. So One of the things I learned, and I've talked about this before on my channel, is the idea of extroversion and introversion. So when I was in the dating market, I was very extroverted. Now, what I'll say about myself is that I am an introverted, an extroverted introvert, which means that I generally recharge by being alone, but I'm very comfortable in social situations and I enjoy social situations. So I would be hanging out with people and they would think that I was overall an extrovert. Well, generally, the way things work is that extroverts are attracted to introverts. 
and introverts are attracted to extroverts. So when I was going out to these parties and meeting people and, and whatever, I was attracting introverts. Introverts were the ones who were expressing their interest in me. And I am not attracted to introverts. I, I don't really get along. I, I just, it's not that I get, don't get along with them. I just find it a little bit boring. Uh, that wasn't my thing as far as dating. I wanted to be with a guy who was extroverted. I wanted to be with a guy who was really kind of fun to talk to and, and could fill up a room. The guy I ended up with is probably the most extroverted person you'll ever meet. So I really liked that. And what I had to learn to do was pull back on that extroverted quality when I was around people so that I would attract extroverts. And it worked. It's possible that you are putting out a vibe that is attracting a different kind of guy than you want. So if you are doing the same thing that I do and you're finding that the extroverted guys that you're interested in aren't showing interest in you, maybe try being a little more introverted and see if that kind of pulls those men who you are interested in towards you. The other things you can do are just making yourself attractive and approachable. I always am a big fan of, you know, putting on nice clothing, doing your hair a little bit, putting on a little bit of makeup, whether that be mascara or more, and just trying to look your best and also trying to seem like you are a friendly person that someone can approach, kind of giving men the opportunity to come over and chat with you. So that's always important. But the last thing is maybe the guys you're attracted to aren't the right guys. Sometimes we are attracted to guys who are like fun but really aren't good for us because the chemistry is there but the compatibility isn't. So evaluate that. Evaluate if the guys that you are actually interested in are good for you. And then you'll see maybe that's the uh, maybe that's one of the factors here is that you it's possible that you're attracted to guys who aren't really the kinds of guys you should be ending up with. I've had that experience where you kind of go through a phase where the guys that you are interested in are not really good for you. So just examine that. That's my advice. And my last question here is what are your thoughts on purity culture? So I did a little bit of research into purity culture and I'm not going to say I'm an expert on it because I'm not. And here's where I come with that. So the idea of waiting to have sex until marriage is incredibly important. I am a huge proponent of that. I talk about it very openly. I think that giving sex the importance it deserves within the framework of family and within the framework of marriage is really, really like the way to go. But when we talk about purity culture, the issue I have is twofold. One is that there's such an emphasis on virginity, as if virginity in and of itself is important. Now, I don't care about virginity. I don't care about the virgin idea. Like, that, who cares? Because what ends up happening, I've heard, is that for a lot of women... It's hard for them to break free of that narrative of like the purity of being a virgin. And then when they get married and they're allowed to have sex, it's like, okay, well, am I impure now? Is sex bad? Is sex gross? I am not a proponent of that, of that framing. Sex is wonderful. 
within the right boundaries, within with the right person, when you can start a family and when you can grow an intimate relationship with the person you've made a lifelong commitment to. Sex is great. And I never struggled with that feeling of like, oh, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. And now I have to flick a switch and now say sex is good. I was always under the impression that sex was great. It just wasn't for me before I got married. It wasn't for my life until I was with my spouse. So I find that that's an issue is the idea that virginity is what matters. It's not what matters. We're giving sex too much credence, or rather virginity too much credence. And it's not. It's not about virginity. It's about viewing sex for what it's for. Sex is very important and sex is beautiful, but it has a role. And if we understand its role, then it doesn't need to be about virginity and purity. It needs, it's about the utility, the utility of sex and how amazing it can be when it's treated with respect. And when I say utility, I don't mean from a utilitarian perspective. I mean, it can be pleasure and, and wonder and, just a really great way to bring a couple together, but it also has a, an important role in reproduction. And uh, that means that it needs to be within an important framework for couples who are married and should bring couples together. So I don't like the idea of the focus on virginity itself, holding virginity on a pedestal rather than recognizing the beauty of sex and its importance within the bounds of marriage is what the problem is. Now, the other problem I have with purity culture is the idea that because it's about virginity, if somebody loses their virginity and has sex, then they can't come back from it. They, like, are now stained. And I have an issue with that because once you realize what the importance of sex is and how what it's for, then you're on the right page. You've done all the right things. You are moving forward, and you can put sex in its rightful place. That's the important thing. If the fact that you had sex before is now like a stain on you that you can't come back from, that is a problem. So I don't think I'm a fan of purity culture because I think it kind of misses the mark on what the point is of waiting to have sex until you're married. And I don't really like the phrase, I don't know if I've used it before, but I'm thinking on it right now. I don't really like the phrase saving yourself for marriage or rather, yeah, saving yourself for marriage as opposed to saving sex for marriage because the virginity, it it, kind of gets in that virginity area again where it's like, okay, you as virgin are holy, you as person who has had sex are not. And that is incorrect. It's just that sex is really, really beautiful when you can share it with your husband. And using sex as something just for pleasure and hedonistic whatever is much worse for everyone involved. So that's my response to the idea of purity culture. But if you have any thoughts and feelings on that, I'd love to hear them in the comments. And that is it for today's video. And that is it for today's podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you think in the comments on Substack or here on YouTube. 
If you aren't already subscribed, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you can get notified of my new episodes as well as Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And I would love if you would consider sharing this with friends and family so that they can hear it as well. And I'll see you guys in my next episode. Bye.